Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. adventure novel by French writer Jules Verne. In the last episode, Professor Aranax, his devoted servant Conseil, and the harpooner Ned Land are cast overboard and lost at sea after their confrontation with the giant mechanical narwhal. They find themselves on a floating metal island that turns out to be the beast they imagined they were hunting. Eventually, the vessel begins to sink, and just in the nick of time, the men are snatched and dragged into the belly of the craft by masked men. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Chapter 8 Mobilis and Mobili This forcible abduction so roughly carried out, was accomplished with the rapidity of lightning. I shivered all over. Whom had we to deal with? No doubt some new sort of pirates who explored the sea in their own way. 
hardly had the narrow panel closed upon me when I was encircled in darkness. My eyes, dazzled with the outer light, could distinguish nothing. I felt my naked feet cling to the rungs of an iron ladder. Ned Land and Conseil, firmly seized, followed me. At the bottom of the ladder, a door opened and shut after us immediately with a bang. We were alone. Where? I could not say. Hardly imagine. All was black, and such a dense black that, after some minutes, my eyes had not been able to discern even the faintest glimmer. Meanwhile, Ned Land, furious at these proceedings, gave free vent to his indignation. Confound it, cried he, here are people who come up to the scotch for hospitality. They only just miss being cannibals. I should not be surprised at it, but I declare that they shall not eat me without my protesting. Calm yourself, friend Ned, calm yourself, replied Conseil quietly. Do not cry out before you are hurt. We are not quite done for yet. Not quite, sharply replied the Canadian, but pretty near at all events. Things look black. Happily, my bowie knife I have still, and I can always see well enough to use it. The first of these pirates who lays a hand on me. Do not excite yourself, Ned, I said to the harpooner, and do not compromise us by useless violence. Who knows that they will not listen to us? Let us rather try to find out where we are. I groped about. In five steps I came to an iron wall made of plates bolted together. Then turning back, I struck against a wooden table near which were ranged several stools. The boards of this prison were concealed under a thick mat which deadened the noise of the feet. The bare walls revealed no trace of window or door. Conseil, going round the reverse way, met me, and we went back to the middle of the cabin, which measured about twenty feet by ten. As to its height, that land in spite of his own great height, could not measure it. Half an hour had already passed without our situation being bettered, when the dense darkness suddenly gave way to extreme light. Our prison was suddenly lighted, that is to say it became filled with a luminous matter, so strong that I could not bear it at first. In its whiteness and intensity, I recognized that electric light which played round the submarine boat like a magnificent phenomena of phosphorescence. After shutting my eyes involuntarily, I opened them and saw that this luminous agent came from a half-globe, unpolished, placed in the roof of the cabin. At least one can see, cried Ned Land, who knife in hand, stood on the defensive. Yes, said I, but we are still in the dark about ourselves. Let master have patience. 
said Conseil. The sudden lighting of the cabin enabled me to examine it minutely. It only contained a table and five stools. The invisible door might be hermetically sealed. No noise was heard. All seemed dead in the interior of this boat. Did it move? Did it float on the surface of the ocean? Or did it dive into its depths? I could not guess. A noise of bolts was now heard. The door opened and two men appeared. One was short, very muscular, broad-shouldered, with robust limbs, strong head, an abundance of black hair, thick mustache, a quick penetrating look, and the vivacity which characterized the population of southern France. The second stranger merits a more detailed description. I made out his prevailing qualities directly. Self-confidence, because his head was well set on his shoulders, and his black eyes looked around with cold assurance. Calmness, for his skin, rather pale, showed his coolness of blood, evinced by the rapid contraction of his lofty brows, and courage, because his deep breathing denoted great power of lungs. Whether this person was thirty-five or fifty years of age, I could not say. He was tall, had a large forehead, straight nose, a clearly cut mouth, beautiful teeth with fine taper hands, indicative of a highly nervous temperament. This man was certainly the most admirable specimen I had ever met. One particular feature was his eyes, rather far from each other, and which could take in nearly a quarter of the horizon at once. This faculty, I verified it later, gave him a range of vision far superior to Ned Land's. When this stranger fixed upon an object, his eyebrows met, his large eyelids closed around so as to contract the range of his vision, and he looked as if he magnified the objects lessened by distance, as if he pierced those sheets of water so opaque to our eyes, and as if he read the very depths of the seas. The two strangers, with caps made from the fur of the sea otter, and shod with sea boots of seal's skin, were dressed in clothes of particular texture which allowed free movement of the limbs. The taller of the two, evidently the chief on board, examined us with great attention, without saying a word. Then, turning to his companion, talked with him in an unknown tongue. It was sonorous, harmonious, and flexible dialect, the vowels seeming to admit a very varied accentuation. The other replied by a shake of the head and added two or three perfectly incomprehensible words. Then he seemed to question me by a look. I replied in good French that I did not know his language, but he seemed not to understand me, and my situation became more embarrassing. 
If master were to tell our story, said Kansai, perhaps these gentlemen may understand some words. I began to tell our adventures, articulating each syllable clearly and without omitting one single detail. I announced our names and rank, introducing in person Professor Aranax, his servant Kansai, and Master Ned Land, the harpooner. The man with the soft, calm eyes listened to me quietly, even politely, and with extreme attention, but nothing in his countenance indicated that he had understood my story. When I finished, he said not a word. There remained one resource to speak English. Perhaps they would know this almost universal language. I knew it, as well as the German language, well enough to read it fluently, but not to speak it correctly. But anyhow, we must make ourselves understood. Go on in your turn, I said to the harpooner. Speak your best Anglo-Saxon and try to do better than I. Ned did not beg off and recommenced our story. To his great disgust, the harpooner did not seem to have made himself more intelligible than I had. Our visitors did not stir. They evidently understood neither the language of England nor of France. Very much embarrassed, after having vainly exhausted our speaking resources, I knew not what part to take. When Conseil said, If master will permit me, I will relate it in German. But in spite of the elegant terms and good accent of the narrator, the German language had no success. At last, nonplussed, I tried to remember my first lessons and to narrate our adventures in Latin, but with no better success. This last attempt being of no avail, the strangers exchanged some words in their unknown language and retired. The door shut. It is an infamous shame, cried Ned Land, who broke out for the twentieth time. We speak to those rogues in French, English, German, and Latin, and not one of them has the politeness to answer. Calm yourself, I said to the impetuous Ned. Anger will do no good. But do you see, Professor, replied our companion, that we shall absolutely die of hunger in this iron cage? Bah, said Conseil, philosophically. We can hold out some time yet. My friends, I said, we must not despair. We have been worse off than this. Do me the favor to wait a little before forming an opinion upon the commander and crew of this boat. My opinion is formed, replied Ned Land. They are rascals. Good. And from what country? From the land of rogues. My brave Ned, that country is not clearly indicated on the map of the world. But I admit that the nationality of the two strangers is hard to determine. Neither English, French, nor German, that is quite certain. However, I am inclined to think that the commander and his companion were born in low latitudes.
There is southern blood in them, but I cannot decide by their appearance whether they are Spaniards, Turks, Arabians, or Indians. As to their language, it is quite incomprehensible to my ears. There is the disadvantage of not knowing all languages, said Conseil, or the disadvantage of not having one universal language. As he said these words, the door opened. A steward entered. He brought us clothes, coats, and trousers, made of stuff I did not know. I hastened to dress myself, and my companions followed my example. During that time, the steward, dumb, perhaps deaf, had arranged the table and laid three plates. This is something I like, said Conseil. Bah, said the angry harpooner. What do you suppose they eat here? Tortoise liver? Filleted shark? Beefsteaks from sea dogs? We shall see, said Conseil. The dishes of bell metal were placed on the table and we took our places. Undoubtedly, we had to do with civilized people, and had it not been for the electric light which flooded us, I could have fancied I was in the dining room of the Adelphi Hotel at Liverpool or at the Grand Hotel in Paris. I must say, however, that there was neither bread nor wine. The water was fresh and clear, but it was water and did not suit Ned Land's taste. Amongst the dishes which were brought to us, I recognized several fish delicately dressed, but of some, although excellent, I could give no opinion, neither could I tell to what kingdom they belonged, whether animal or vegetable. As to the dinner service, it was elegant and in perfect taste. Each utensil, spoon, fork, knife, plate, had a letter engraved on it with a motto above it, of which this is an exact facsimile. Mobilis in mobili, N. The letter N was no doubt the initial of the name of the enigma, the person who commanded at the bottom of the seas. Ned and Conseil did not reflect much. They devoured the food, and I did likewise. I was, besides, reassured as to our fate, and it seemed evident that our hosts would not let us die of want. However, everything has an end. Everything passes away, even the hunger of people who have not eaten for fifteen hours. Our appetites satisfied, we felt overcome with sleep. Faith, I shall sleep well, said Conseil. So shall I, replied Ned Land. My two companions stretched themselves on the cabin carpet and were soon sound asleep. For my own part, too many thoughts crowded my brain. Too many insoluble questions pressed upon me. Too many fancies kept my eyes half open. Where were we? 
what strange power carried us on. I felt, or rather fancied I felt, the machine sinking down to the lowest beds of the sea. Dreadful nightmares beset me. I saw in these mysterious asylums a world of unknown animals, amongst which this submarine boat seemed to be of the same kind, living, moving, and formidable as they. Then my brain grew calmer. My imagination wandered into vague unconsciousness, and I soon fell into a deep sleep. Chapter 9 Ned Land's Tempers How long we slept I do not know, but our sleep must have lasted long for it rested us completely from our fatigues. I woke first. My companions had not moved and were still stretched in their corner. Hardly roused from my somewhat hard couch, I felt my brain free my mind clear. I then began an attentive examination of our cell. Nothing was changed inside. The prison was still a prison. The prisoners, prisoners. However, the steward, during our sleep, had cleared the table. I breathed with difficulty. The heavy air seemed to oppress my lungs. Although the cell was large, we had evidently consumed a great part of the oxygen that it contained. Indeed, each man consumes in one hour the oxygen contained in more than 176 pints of air, and this air, charged, as then, with a nearly equal quantity of carbonic acid becomes unbreathable. It became necessary to renew the atmosphere of our prison and no doubt the hole in the submarine boat. That gave rise to a question in my mind. How would the commander of this floating dwelling place proceed? Would he obtain air by chemical means in getting by heat the oxygen contained in chlorate of potash, and in absorbing carbonic acid by caustic potash, or a more convenient, economical, and consequently more probable alternative, would he be satisfied to rise and take breath at the surface of the water like a whale, and so renew for 24 hours the atmospheric provision? In fact, I was already obliged to increase my respirations to eke out of this cell the little oxygen it contained, when suddenly I was refreshed by a current of pure air and perfumed with saline emanations. It was an invigorating sea breeze, charged with iodine. I opened my mouth wide and my lungs saturated themselves with fresh particles. At the same time, I felt the boat rolling, 
The iron-plated monster had evidently just risen to the surface of the ocean to breathe, after the fashion of whales. I found out from that the mode of ventilating the boat. When I had inhaled this air freely, I sought the conduit pipe, which conveyed to us the beneficial whiff, and I was not long in finding it. Above the door was a ventilator, through which volumes of fresh air renewed the impoverished atmosphere of the cell. I was making my observations when Ned and Conseil awoke almost at the same time under the influence of this reviving air. They rubbed their eyes, stretched themselves, and were on their feet in an instant. Did Master sleep well? asked Conseil with his usual politeness. Very well. And you, Mr. Land? Soundly, Professor, but I don't know if I am right or not. There seems to be a sea breeze. A seaman could not be mistaken, and I told the Canadian all that had passed during his sleep. Good, said he. That accounts for those roarings we heard when the supposed narwhal sighted the Abraham Lincoln. Quite so, Master Land. It was taking breath. Only, Mr. Aranax, I have no idea what o'clock it is, unless it is dinner time. Dinner time? My good fellow, say rather breakfast time, for we certainly have begun another day. So, said Conseil, we have slept twenty-four hours? That is my opinion. I will not contradict you, replied Ned Land, but dinner or breakfast, the steward will be welcome, whichever he brings. Master Land, we must conform to the rules on board, and I suppose our appetites are in advance of the dinner hour. That is just like you, friend Conseil, said Ned, impatiently. You are never out of temper always calm, you would return thanks before grace and die of hunger rather than complain. Time was getting on, and we were fearfully hungry, and this time the steward did not appear. It was rather too long to leave us, if they really had good intentions towards us. Ned Land, tormented by the cravings of hunger, got still more angry and notwithstanding his promise, I dreaded an explosion when he found himself with one of the crew. For two hours more, Ned Land's temper increased. He cried. He shouted. But in vain. The walls were deaf. There was no sound to be heard in the boat. All was still. It did not move, for I should have felt the trembling motion of the hull under the influence of the screw. Plunged in the depths of the waters, it belonged no longer to earth. This was true silence. I felt terrified. Conseil was calm. Ned Land roared. Just then, a noise was heard outside. Steps sounded on the metal flags. The locks were turned. 
the doors opened and the steward appeared. Before I could rush forward to stop him, the Canadian had thrown him down and held him by the throat. The steward was choking under the grip of his powerful hand. Conseil was already trying to unclasp the harpooner's hand from his half-suffocated victim, and I was going to fly to the rescue, when suddenly I was nailed to the spot by hearing these words in French. Be quiet, Master Land, and you, Professor, will you be so good as to listen to me? It was the commander of the vessel who thus spoke. At these words, Ned Land rose suddenly. The steward, nearly strangled, tottered out on a sign from his master. But such was the power of the commander on board that not a gesture betrayed the resentment which this man must have felt towards the Canadian. Conseil, interested in spite of himself, I, stupefied, awaited in silence the result of this scene. The commander, leaning against the corner of a table with his arms folded, scanned us with profound attention. Did he hesitate to speak? Did he regret the words which he had just spoken in French? One might almost think so. After some moments of silence, which not one of us dreamed of breaking. Gentlemen, said he, in a calm and penetrating voice, I speak French, English, German, and Latin equally well. I could therefore have answered you at our first interview, but I wish to know you first, then to reflect. The story told by each one entirely agreeing in the main points, convinced me of your identity. I now know that chance has brought me before Monsieur Pierre Aranax, professor of natural history at the Museum of Paris, entrusted with a scientific mission abroad. Conseil, his servant, and Ned Land, of Canadian origin, harpooner on board the frigate Abraham Lincoln, of the Navy of the United States of America. I bowed assent. It was not a question that the commander put to me. Therefore, there was no answer to be made. This man expressed himself with perfect ease, without any accent. His sentences were well turned, his words clear, and his fluency of speech remarkable. Yet I did not recognize in him a fellow countryman. He continued the conversation in these terms. You have doubtless thought, sir, that I have delayed long in paying you this second visit. The reason is that your identity recognized I wished to weigh maturely what part to act towards you. I have hesitated much. Most annoying circumstances have brought you into the presence of a man who has broken all the ties of humanity. You 
have come to trouble my existence. Unintentionally, said I. Unintentionally, replied the stranger, raising his voice a little. Was it unintentionally that the Abraham Lincoln pursued me all over the seas? Was it unintentionally that you took passage in this frigate? Was it unintentionally that your cannonballs rebounded off the plating of my vessel? Was it unintentionally that Mr. Ned Land struck me with his harpoon?